Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and my guest, Chuck Wisner, is here today to help us understand four fundamental types of conversations to improve communication and relationships. And let's face it, conversations are tricky. Listening is tricky. Uh, It's all tricky. So he is a highly sought-after thinker, coach, and teacher in the areas of organizational strategy, human dynamics, and leadership excellence. He has spent 25 years as a business and personal consultant and a trusted advisor to leaders in high-profile companies across many industries. His methods are anchored in years of leading-edge research, theoretical development, and the practical application of the foundations of conversations. There's that word again. He's currently working on his book, Conscious Conversations, Mastering the Art of Collaborating, Creating, and Building Trust with Others in Business and in Life. And I get a copy of that book pretty soon, as soon as it's ready. He became a specialist in organizational learning and leadership associated with MIT's Center for Organizational Learning. He is currently working as an advisor with leaders and their teams at Google, Apple, DTE Energy, and PSEG, and they're all Fortune 200 companies. His client list has included Tesla, Harvard Business School, Toyota, the Detroit Mayor's Office, General Motors, Shell, and Chrysler Motor Company. Chuck, welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. It's very good to be here. Thank you for that generous introduction. Oh, there was I had to cut out a lot of it. There's just so much <laughs> about you. It's like I will drone on and on and on and we'll never get to check. So I actually had so I actually it's true. So I actually wanted you to tell people how you became this specialist and this is kind of a later in life thing that you did. I mean, this is not what you started out life doing. That's right. Yeah, there's a great word i think it was maslow said there's a there's crystallization moments in life and for me i was an architect in in cambridge mass um and we had um one of the partners was an alcoholic and as much as we tried when we were seven people in our firm it was easy but when we got to be a mid-sized firm of 40 people it became a problem his behavior became a problem so to make a long story short, we we architects didn't know what to do, um, and so we hired in some help and burned through a couple consultants that were useless, and then and then hired a woman. Her name is Linda Reed, and she came in and she read the situation. She helped us sort of understand what was going on, gave us tools to understand each other, and gave and then helped us navigate a future. And I was just I was, it was like a lightning bolt struck me. It was like, how did she do that? And I got totally interested. We became friends um, and did, I, I just started wanting to understand. So I did a mediation course and ended up doing mediation through the Harvard, Harvard uh, Law School. 
<clears throat> and then Lynn and I did a few things on conflict management. And then I did a year-long study on the ontology of language. And then four years later, I said goodbye to architecture and started a different business. You never, <laughs> That's the story. And you never saw that coming, did you? Never saw that coming. That's right. No. We and, never and do as so we much, move and grow. Yeah, no, exactly. And it wasn't so much a, 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 a rejection of architecture at all. It was more falling in love with something different and the idea of the power of language and conversations. And, and I just fell in love with that and just it, one thing led to another, led to another. And here, here we are. Exactly. And, you know, conversations, as I mentioned earlier, they're tricky. I mean, I, I don't have any filters, and I know this. So I, <laughs> my mother warned me. She warns me when she was still living. She would tell people, don't ask her. Oh, crap, you asked her. Because <laughs> like, oh, I will say, if it's great. in my mind, it'll drop straight out of my mouth, and I have to be careful. I've had to learn to not just – Say, well, you're kind yeah. of a moron, aren't you? I mean, that's rude, right? Yeah. So you can't say yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, but, that's really good. Well, yeah, yeah. Don't, Denise, don't call people morons because you know I is one half the time. So, <laughs> but the thing is, conversations are they're tricky, I and mean, you have to. And this is just me telling you what I think about conversations, but I think one of the most important part of a conversation is to shut up and listen. What do you think? Yeah, listening is, um, there's so much written about listening. And from my perspective, what what we often miss is we have to start, we have to start quieting ourselves down a bit before we can listen. So most of the time, people's problems with listening is their monkey mind is running a thousand miles an hour or they want to get their point across in a meeting, you know, or, or they, they just want to be heard. And so while they might be doing all the right things to look like they're listening, meanwhile their mind is going fast and they're thinking about what their next comment is going to be. And so a lot of the fundamentals of conversation, because we'll talk about the four types of conversations, they have to start with a little bit of self-reflection. Did I lose you? Can you hear me? Oh, no, we lost him. Okay, while he dials back in, I'm going to tell you what the four con- the fundamental and distinct types of conversations he tells me are stories, perspectives, possibilities, and commitments. And I've got a list of things here that I really didn't want to just kind of rattle out. But while we're waiting, I'll, I'll go ahead and fill the time with them. So what he told me is that we need to navigate any conversation humbly, compassionately, effectively, and successfully. And we need to understand how to use facts and persuasive opinions to influence others. And I'm pretty sure that means you can't just jump in and say, hey, but you need to actually listen and be persuasive. And then how to ask significant questions and encourage collaboration and how to make promises and build trusting relationships. These sound daunting, but I think if you you know follow his advice and, and many other people who are talking about conversations, you know, you'll be able to make it through. So it looks like he's back in. Hey, Jack, are you I'm here? Back in. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I don't, I don't have no idea uh, what happened. 
I was just rambling. Where did, we, where did you lose me? <laughs> well, where did you where did you lose me? I lost you. Hmm. Good question because I just started filling in I, in the stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think I was talking about um, listening. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the problem is that people don't listen well because often their their mind is running. You know, their monkey mind is running and they're chattering in their head trying to figure out what they're going to say next. And so a lot of the, the, the work that has to be done with listening is to back up and do, do some self-work about how we're behaving in conversation or what our patterns are in conversation. Chuck, do people understand? Listen, I've been around people who just talked incessantly. And I'll be honest with right. you, I'm an introvert, and people like that wear me out. I mean, I will have my keys in my hands. <laughs> I can't get out of that door quick enough. What I have found with people who just talk, 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 diarrhea of the mouth, you can call it whatever you want, I don't think they right. know they're doing it. How can they no, be so know, unaware? Well, there's one of my teachers of, of 20 years ago, uh, his name was uh, uh, Rafael uh, Echeverria, and he, he had a lovely saying. He says, we're, we human, we're like fish in water. We're humans in conversation. So we're swimming in these conversations, but we've never stopped long enough to think about our conversations. And in fact, in fact, you can't blame anyone because we're really not taught fundamentals about conversations. We just, you know, we adopt what we learn from our families and our cultures and we start talking and we have our, we have our preferences like you, you're an introvert and someone else is an extrovert and that all just starts rolling and by the time you get to being an adult and you're working, you have these patterns of how you communicate and mostly we're not aware of them. Well, that makes sense because, you know, yeah. I had, I like to kind of sit back and listen, and then pop up a question and go, hey, how about this? Every mm. once in a while, I'll get real excited and say, oh, 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 yeah, you know, my hand goes up. You can't see me, but my hand is up in the air. I'm like, hey, I got a question. But mostly, <laughs> I want to <laughs> listen. Uh, and I don't know right. if that's something that's natural to me, but probably because I am an introvert, and I was always the quiet kid in the corner who knew everything about the neighborhood. If my parents right, knew right. what I knew back then, they probably would have just strangled me. But I never talked. About it. You were you were taking it all in. Oh, you talk about. <laughs> but you know, it's it's interesting how we don't know what we don't know about ourselves, and I think that's what I really kind of wanted to navigate with you today. How do we understand? You know, if we're really like with your your partner at the firm, he. Mm-hmm. You know, he started really impacting people. Apparently, he didn't know or didn't care. So how do you right. know and how do you care? You know, I run into a lot of different kind of leaders, but there's a spectrum of the leader. My my best clients are good leaders that are constantly wanting to pay attention to what, how they're communicating, how their words are affecting others, and how they're leading. Then on the other end of the spectrum are the people that just went into this pattern of having to be, and this is very much a cultural phenomenon in business and hierarchies, where you're trained from elementary school to have the answers to things. You know, like you said, you raise your hand for a question. The more common thing is you raise your hand because you have the answer. 
Um, oh, especially in school. Especially in school <laughs> on a podcast, you know? I have I have a question, but yeah, I get I understand that, and I never thought of it. Yeah, so the, so there's a that's it's it's our other end of the spectrum are the leaders that uh, are are think they have to be the smartest person in the room, or they have to have the answer, or as the leader, they should have they should know what the solution is. And my favorite clients, and I have a few that I've had for ten and fifteen years are the leaders on that other end of the spectrum that are really good leaders and they're constantly paying attention. Like, how could I have done this better? I had this dilemma. How do I present this conversation? How do I start this conversation? With, how do I involve my people in this solution? Those are, those are the really great people to work with. The people on the other end, sometimes you need a two by four or a four by eight to hit them over the head and like, wake up buddy or wake up ma'am, you know? Um, and that's, that's, they have to do hard work, and I've actually turned down some clients that just aren't willing to do the work because they just don't see the impact they're having, and they're not willing to to accept that they're a part of the problem. I would imagine that happens quite a bit. Is this something that you have to just say, listen, I wish I could help you, but until you see what the problem is, I'm not your guy. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely, especially at my age and, and the point in my career, um, I can pick and choose who I want to work with. And, you know, I'll, I'll meet people and do a, a little assessment on what the situation is, in a, say, in a business setting or with a team uh, or even a family. But um, if I make an assessment and I can sort of, you know, make an observation that here's there is a problem here with how you're communicating and the culture you're creating is not safe or the culture you're creating is people don't feel that you're trusted. And if they are willing to accept that premise and then I say, okay, now here's the work we have to do. And if they are willing that that's great because then I'm really happy to help them. But I've turned down clients who just uh, denied the problem or, or, or saying, you know, I'm fine just the way I am. You know, by the way, I'm retiring in five years, so so who gives a damn? Oh, <laughs> you know. It, yeah, while, yeah. While I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, okay, if you were to come to me and say, Denise, you've got a problem, blah blah, I would probably my hackles would go up, no question about it. I know me mm-hmm. well enough to go ah, yeah. uh, back off. But I would yeah. also, I yeah. think, have the sense to say, you know, I'm gonna have to think about this. You just hit me in the head. So I would like to either think about this and come back later and say one of two things. Okay, I I understand what you're talking about. Let's see if we can work on this. Or, by the way, you're a jerk, and I never want to talk to you again. <laughs> so, yes, right. Yeah. Are those the yeah. two, well, two responses I, I, you get? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. And I, you know, I mean, I was pretty abrupt in how I described it to you, but you know, I. You know, if people do want to do the work, I frame it up as they're looking. Here's, here's, you have great potential. You have a great job. You have a good team. But going forward, you know, if you want to get to the next level from director to VP or from VP to CEO or COO, you know, here's work that you could do that really would serve you well. And, and then you know that, that that's a that's a choice they have to make about their future, um, but it's always in in the name of 
you can do better. You know, we can all do better. No kidding. So while while you were away, I don't know where you went, but you went away for a little bit. I went ahead and, you know, I went numbered out some things that we were going to talk about. I wasn't going to. I was going to bring them, you know, into the conversation as a conversation. But since I've already listed Mm -hmm. them, let's talk about them if we can. One of them was the four fundamental and distinct types of conversations. And you say they're stories, perspectives, possibilities, and commitments. I understand three of those pretty pretty well, but let's go through those and see what I'm missing. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, and the 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 reason it's an interesting story behind the so so my book is structured around these four types of conversations, and the interesting story there is with a client I was working with, I think it was Chrysler, and probably working with for five years, and we were having a cocktail one night. And he said, all these tools that this was when I was teaching leadership through the MIT program, all these tools that you guys have given us about mental models and emotional intelligence and the ladder of inference and making promises you keep and all those things. He goes, I don't, there, there's so much, I don't know how to hold it together. And it, that stuck with me and it took me a while, it took me a year or so to realize that it's actually the structure of the four conversations that that holds all that complexity together and, and shows how they interrelate. So that's the real beauty of, of looking at it this way so we can think about conversations in a new way. And, and none of it is rocket science. It's that we never really, like, you know, think about our thinking or think about our conversations. So the narrative – so the, the story conversation, that's a very much individual sort of exploration of, of uh, the stories that we have, the stories that we hold. Stories are a beautiful thing, and, you know, we, we love fiction, and we love to tell stories. Um, and they're beautiful until they're not, because they're also stories that we hold personally that don't serve us well. And the, there's a great quote by a, a poet, Muriel Ruckheiser, and her quote is, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. I love that because it's really telling us like stories we believe and the stories we tell that generates what happens in our relationships and how we show up in the world. So this conversation is really about saying whether you're talking about something very personal or whether you're in a business setting or whether you're a parent, every time we have a judgment and every time we have a strong opinion that we're putting out in the world, um, and we have an emotional reaction, there's a story underneath that opinion. There's a story underneath that emotion. And that's based on how our brain works because we have all these uh, neural networks where things happen to our life, and we have a part of our brain that actually is a, uh, takes all these billions of bits of information based on our past and what we believe, creates creates a making sense, like a making sense part of our brain. It makes sense of things and then delivers a story to us. And then we can do that. We can have those stories very unconsciously, but if we put our attention on them, it actually can make a huge difference in us understanding and observing ourselves uh, in conversation. So a quick example, uh, and this is very personal, 
But a quick example is when I grew up, I grew up with a racist grandfather. Uh, my father wasn't a racist, but he was a real man's man. And uh, my grandfather was a, a real character. He was my adopted grandfather, not my blood grandfather. But with that culture that I grew up in, I had three sisters. I was a younger brother. And from those men, especially my grandfather, when I cried or when I would get upset about something I didn't like, skinning the deer, um, the message I was given was, you're not a big enough man. Be a man. Get, you know, be a man. Get some guts. And as a child, uh, I, their voice had huge amounts of power and authority. And so I unconsciously adopted this story that I wasn't a big enough man and literally lived with me through, you know, my college years until I changed into this business. And one of my teachers said, you know, one thing we have to do is bust our stories that don't serve us well. And they helped me bust my story And one day I walked into my firm and I was having coffee with uh, one of my colleagues. And it was like, again, I was shocked. It was like, I'm standing there having coffee. And this person, I'll I'll say James, just to protect the innocent. And I looked at James. We were standing there. And it's the first time I realized that I was taller than James. I saw myself as smaller. That's the power. That's the power of stories that are not serving us well. Oh, my. It does. I have a similar story in that I don't cry. I was taught, all of us, we were taught that we were not to cry. It was was weak. I still don't cry. I'm not a crier. Like, you know, oddly Mm -hmm. enough, I'll cry when my cat dies and I have to euthanize a cat. But, and I cried recently when a bit you know I just kind of gulped and cried a little bit but I'm I'm not a crier and that's always yeah. bothered me because I've actually had people say well you know you're not quite human really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then I had to realize a friend of mine actually kind of called me on that and she said do you not understand how empathetic you are that you're a kind person I said are you talking to me <laughs> I was like what what are you talking about? And and she was dead yeah. serious. She, she, we were driving. She stopped the car. She said, I'm, you know, we need to talk about this. You have empathy. You have kindness. You have compassion. Why do you not a compassionate person? I said, I don't cry. I don't have feelings. I thought she was mm. going to kick me out of the car. I really did. <laughs> years ago, but she got my attention. <laughs> and it was a story that I was taught. So I completely yeah, understand. And I still have yeah. trouble with it. I'll be honest. I still have the yeah, Denise. You're kind of a witch. No, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. No, no, no. Yeah, it's yeah, the stories yeah. we yeah. tell ourselves that are the most damaging. Yeah, and then so I'll, I'll in a minute I'll I'll talk about some fundamental questions that I like that I hold as a sort of template for helping us uh, understand our stories and stuff. But the the important thing about this conversation is there's there's three components. There's say we have a story about the mean boss or whatever, or the, the uh, condescending boss. There's a story, there's a judgment, and we have an emotional reaction. 
And often we have, we, we think about our emotions and we feel them and they're real. Um, but what we don't understand is they're driven by this underbelly story. So generally, uh, unless there's something psychologically or physiologically wrong with the person's brain, if we have a, a reaction to something going on in the world, um, if we just take a little time and go underneath and say, well, so what do I believe that is driving that emotion? You know, what are my uh, beliefs, my prejudices, my judgments that are driving that emotion? And then that puts us on a journey of self-discovery. Inside of that, then we go, okay, so what's real? Like for me, when I was busting my story about a big enough man, I looked at some facts. Like I was six feet tall. I was, I went through, I put myself through architecture school. I was working in a firm. Wait a minute. What's this big enough story, man? I had these facts that were like, you know, counter facts that were, were slowly allowing me to sort of let go of that story. Um, and so our stories are emotions. There's a way to ground ourselves in facts. And then we look at the opinion itself. And that's where things get messy because all of our opinions and all of our judgments are so subjective. The facts are objectivity. I mean, if it's the real fact, you can't disagree with it. Uh, well, no, we're, that's a whole other subject because of what we've been through <laughs> with the election. <laughs> but, and social media. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> The objective facts are the sky is blue. We all know the sky is blue because we all have the same retina and the way, ability to see colors. Um, but, but our opinions get messy because they're very subjective, and they include all of our judgments and all of our prejudices and things and mental models. So then we have to say, okay, so let me deconstruct my opinion a little bit. And there is where I, I, I use four questions, which, which become really quite um, – useful in all the conversations. So for this conversation, if I want to do this work, um, I will acknowledge the emotion, I'll ground myself in facts, and then I'll ask myself four questions. And the questions are, let, let's, we can take, for example, your story of I don't cry, right? Yeah. You were given that story. You adopted that story, right? Um, now, do you have a concern about that story? What are your no. fears about that story? Okay. I really don't. I'm so used to it. I'm so accustomed to it. And I'm a very private person, so I'm not going to cry mm -hmm. and sob in front of anybody anyway. Um, yeah. I'm just not going to. So, no, it doesn't really bother me, but it is part of my story. And mm -hmm. I've had people say, do you, you really, you know, they've seen me at funerals on the rare occasions that I would go to one, and they'd say, you don't cry. You don't show any emotion. Well, I'm standing here. I'm here. I'm talking with you. That's about as good as it's going to get, which sounds really cold. And I know it does. I'm not a cold or a hard person. Yeah. But yeah. pretty, pretty buttoned up most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that's a, that, that's a pattern and a, a story you adopted that right. has a very, physical nature to it, right? My whole family's you know, this way, by the way. We were all that way. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, there could be a real physiological thing. It's just how your brain is wired, right? 
But what's happening is and now, you, now your story bumps up against the, the standards of culture. So, and that's sort of the where you where you get the, um, the, the where you sort of get uh, taken taken to task by friends and things. So, the cultural measure, the cultural standard is when you're upset, when you are sad, you cry. And now, maybe that's true or not, but that's the standard that you're being measured against. So, one of the four questions is what standards do we hold that allows us to have this opinion about ourselves or allows us to have our opinion about other people? You know, for you, you might get totally free to say, you know what, that's a cultural standard, but that's not how my system works. So you don't have to feel guilty. You don't have to feel anything. You just sort of like let it be. Um, And so the, the standards is, standards is one of the four fundamental questions that help us sort of, deconstruct and take apart our opinions that, that uh, are causing causing us a little pain. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, I'm kind of poking at myself a bit while I'm listening to you and thinking about what you're saying. I don't need to cry. I'll cry if I want to. I'll cry if I need to. Mm-hmm. It's not something mm-hmm. that I, I have any guilt about. It's just not what I do. It's not who I am. I'm always shocked if I actually do cry. I'm like, ooh. Did you ever see the movie? I'm going to go back. This is silly, but the I think it's the holiday where mm. what is her name? The blonde, the blonde. It was um. God, I can't remember who was in it, but it's a Christmas movie, and the girl yeah. doesn't know how to cry. She just and when she finally does, she's like, "Oh my god!" And every time she starts to cry, I'm like, "That is so fake. <laughs> she is fake." <laughs> That's the one part of the story where they really lose me. You either can or you can't. Yeah. So there's that. But it yeah, doesn't bother right, me. Right, right. But I do find it interesting that it's just, but it's not just me. It's my brothers and sisters. We're all that way. It's We were taught yeah, that. So don't cry. You're weak. Yeah. You're weak. You know, this family doesn't mm-hmm. cry. And, mm-hmm. and when you were talking about, you realized, very suddenly that you were taller than the man that you were standing next to. I wanted to go back to that because what did you do then? What that had to open up a whole floodgate of things to you. I mean, just that one small recognition. Yeah. That was part of this. That was part of me sort of, you know, waking up to to waking up in a, a sense by the studies I was doing on the, the power of language and conversations that how how much power they have it has um and so for me that was like man this is this is big stuff <laughs> you know uh and that just kept me on the journey and i think it was you know another year later that i you know left the partnership and and started doing other work so I'll take you back to the the story conversation because there's that very personal piece, and then there's the the thing for leaders and sort of in business. Like uh, I have a client who's a self-doubting executive. You know, so he has a story that that you know he should sort of hold back and not speak unless he has something valuable to say, or that he shouldn't speak up against his boss. And we've been unwinding that story now for you know a couple months because he he wants to be more assertive he wants to speak his mind he wants to have his voice 
And that's one of the questions is, what do you want? What are your desires? What are your goals? And he wants to do that, but he, his story was getting in the way. And then the second question is, what, what, are, are, what authority issues are playing out? And for him, this story that he had about, well, he's my boss, so I shouldn't disagree, or he's my boss, and I might lose my job if I speak up, that was, that was something we had to deal with. And, and then the thing we talked about standards with your crying, what, were, what, was he, what standards did he have or what measures was he sort of putting toward this situation where he felt like he wasn't showing up or he wasn't being assertive enough? And, and that was literally him recognizing his standards of not giving himself authority to speak up not giving himself permission oh. to have his voice, not giving him, not learning how to have a conversation of disagreement in a very respectful way, that it was possible to disagree respectfully. It was possible to disagree and not threaten your boss. So then we redesigned his conversations so he could sort of come into them with his, you know, with his own sort of centeredness, like I have a responsibility, I have a lot of authority and power in this business. And this is a senior executive at a, at a pretty major company. Um, he claimed his own power and then learned to speak in, in a way that didn't uh, anger his boss, but was offering information that was actually serving both of them. Does that make sense? It does. And, I'm always I'm always startled when people can't use their voice. I use mine all the time. <laughs> I mean, I really <laughs> do. I may be buttoned up, mm-hmm. but I don't have filters, which probably is a whole nother conversation. But but yeah. I'm always yeah. surprised when people just don't when other people scare the bejeebers out of them, which is what I'm hearing. Like, how did that happen? I mean, how did he get to the well, point where he's very high up in a big organization, but he's terrified to speak? I don't understand. Yeah, well, so look, at so this happens in many fields. This happened to be, um, well, I shouldn't say, but it happens in many fields. It happens in engineering. It happens in medical. Right. Fields. It happens in, uh, you know, I have energy clients because – People become experts in their field. They, you know, they go to college, they get out, they learn things, they become a great expert, right? But that doesn't mean their conversational patterns that they learned and they picked up 30 years ago because they were afraid to talk to their father or because they, were, they, they never learned how to – because they were conflict avoidant, you know? Uh, and so – they can be experts, they can be really good at their job, but get this other piece, they might have a story like, oh, you know, like, like this, this guy, this client of mine, we'll call him Vincent, had this story that it wasn't okay to speak up, it wasn't okay to disagree, and who am I to do that? So all that stuff, when we take it apart, it's like, it, it's like again, for him, it was like, wow, I can do this. Um, and so, you know, again, back to that sort of extreme of leaders who are knowers versus leaders who want to learn, he slides toward that side of, oh, there's something I can do better here. There's something I can learn here. Now, that, t- that sort of uh, example of Vincent sort of takes us to the next question, I mean, to the next conversation, which is the perspective 
for the collaborative conversation. You know, once we do our work inside of what's my story, what am I bringing to the table, uh, and Vincent sort of does that work and recognizes his own power and what he can do, now we move to this collaborative conversation that's really about the art of, of listening and the art of advocating in a productive, uh, open way and the art of asking questions in an open, productive way. This conversation is, you know, happens all the time, except we are trained to be pretty bad advocates, bad advocates in the sense that we, we advocate our position to win the argument or we advocate our position to, um, to make sure, you know, our voice is heard. We inquire or we ask questions often in a bad way because our questions are inquisitory or our questions are asking, I'm asking you a question because I, 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 in a sense, so that I can disprove your, your, your position. Oh, give me some examples. I know exactly what you're talking about, but give us some examples. Yeah. So if, if, um, let's see, if, if, if we're in a meeting and uh, the, let's go back to, Vincent and that example, because that, that's an easy one to, to stay with. Once he did his own work, right, now we can say, okay, now what's this, what does this collaborative conversation look like? And what he recognizes is that when he speaks up um, in, a, in his, with his new voice and his new uh, power, um, he can advocate for his position in a very different way. He can say, look, hey, Jane, boss, I have some ideas. It's your, it's your final decision, but I have some ideas that might um, help us think this through so we get to a better solution. Are you interested? You don't want to talk about that. That's a really different way to present a position than to say, wow, uh, if we go down that road, we're in trouble, or if you make that decision, we're going to get screwed. Right. right. Um, and because in, in that last one, we're sort of we're sort of stripping power away and, and leaders that have power do not like their authority to be questioned. <laughs> um, no, and they don't want you so, to insult them either. I mean, insulting somebody is right. not going to get you very far. Right. But the, that this art of being able to advocate, I like the example I use is it's like if I have a strong position about something, or you I and I disagreed about something. Let's say we disagreed about um, oh, uh, the, the, what the the decision we should make on the how much money to spend on the production of the of the new product for the next quarter. So, um, and I have a position that you know I think we're I think. We should go slow. We should spend a million bucks. And you say, you know what? This is such a great idea. We should be really going all this theme ahead. We should be spending, you know, five million bucks. If you hold your position with a fist and I hold my position with a fist, what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. Yeah. Or we, you know, we, you know, fist to fist. You know, we're just, I'm pushing your fist. You're pushing my fist. And nothing happens. That's that's closed advocacy. That's advocacy where you can't listen to the other person, where you can't learn from the other person, where you can't uh, adjust your thinking. And so, 
slowly, if you if you use the question, say, well, what do I want here? Who has authority? What am I concerned about? What what standards do I hold? You're, you're sort of opening your hand and saying, here's why I think the way I'm thinking. And if you do a similar thing and say, well, here's how I'm Here's what I'm worried about, and here's what I think we should, my, what I think our goals should be. And all of a sudden, we are having a very different conversation because exactly. we're exposing our thinking, we're exposing our thinking, we're exposing our concerns, and that and you're introducing new ideas. And yeah, and that that then that creates this flow of information where, and, and my goodness, instead of being the leader that's the knower that has to have all the answers, I can go, wow, Denise, I never thought of it that way. Conversation has completely changed. And here's what I've noticed, because I have a terrific team, and I always, it took me a while to learn this jacket really good, because I've, I'm an A-type personality. I want things done my way. Just get in, do it. Move on. Let's go do something. I had to to train myself that that wasn't very smart, and that when I'm hiring yeah. people for my team, and I I make it a point. I'll be very frank with you. I make it a point to hire people who are better at something than I am, because they've trained for it. Yeah. They stay up on top of it. You know, I don't ever right. ask my team to do anything that I can't do myself, but they can do it quicker, mm-hmm. easier, probably better, and I let them go. But it took a while. For me to open yeah. up and say, hey, guys, you know, you do this all the time. I do it about, you know, one minute a week. What do right. you suggest? Okay. Exactly. Yeah, so, and that's, that, that's the inquiry part. That's the ability to say, here's the problem. And probably the biggest mistake leaders make is to then to, and then spit out their opinion or their position. Because I did it. Been there guilty. Yeah, it's what I call it the power of ten because as soon as you speak up with that voice, everyone gives your word more authority than you even can imagine. They, you say, oh, I think that was a stupid idea, and they think I think I'm going to get fired. And so, <laughs> the the inquiry piece is to say, here's a problem. What do you guys think? What are the different ways we can? What are the five different perspectives sitting around this room? Right, and that's when people are engaged and that's when you can have a real dialogue about about thinking differently about changing minds now that rolls us into the next conversation possibilities or the creative conversation because when you have people with the open hands saying let's explore let's learn let's let's be open right ideas just start bubbling up they do that's true if we if we both had closed fists those ideas wouldn't there wouldn't be any space in the conversation right well and what happens is once you feel like you're part of <clears throat> excuse me once you're part of a conversation that you actually do have a voice or an opinion and you're not going to get smacked into the corner of the room or cut off of zoom whatever's happening <laughs> all of a sudden and I've noticed this time and time again. People start talking a little bit faster. Their voice will they'll get excited. Their voice will go up a half, half an octave. All of a sudden, they're collaborating. Their their creativity is like, oh, it opens up the door and it comes on in. But if you're sitting around yeah. telling people what to do and how to do it, and by golly, they better do it your way, just plan on a yeah. big turnover in your team. Plan on it. It's going to happen. Plan on it. Yeah, or I, or I work with you know the corporate clients I work with. I know teams that w- were stuck because they had these opposing views, and they were just so 
damn, you know, they had their so planted, their feet were so firmly planted on their position that problems wouldn't get solved and they would have these dilemmas that would cost lots of money and lots of time and they would drag on for six months or more, right? Um, And so while these aren't, this isn't like anything rocket science, it's this ability to understand what conversation are we in and how do we have it better than we have had it in the past. And the the creative conversation about, you know, ideas start bubbling up, there's a whole individual component to that too. Like how willing are we to put aside our judgments so we can think about new possibilities? How willing are we to trust our intuition so that new ideas can come into our head? Um, So that the creative conversation has this real personal component about willingness to, to, to think out of the box and then a willingness to dialogue with other people to create solutions that maybe wouldn't have been discovered otherwise. Oh, exactly. And now, of course, we're heading for year two of lockdown, which I'm not going to even say what I think about that. I think you can figure it out from my tone of voice. <laughs> Sounds snippy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but Zoom calls, I mean, those are different Mm -hmm. from sitting in a room with people. Those are different from emailing or Skyping with your team. So what are you finding with, you know, all these facts, persuasive opinions, influence perspectives, all the things we're talking about, how does that translate Mm -hmm. into online conversations? Is it good, better, different? What are you, what are you witnessing? Yeah. So my, my experience is that it, it goes, it can go in two directions, and again, there, we're, we're, we're talking about a spectrum of things that are possible here, right? One direction is bad habits get exasperated. So uh-huh. you know, a, leader, a leader that communicates at a, with, with an iron fist or, or is unaware of the power of his voice uh, or presents solutions or his opinions before his team has to speak up, and that kind of thing will just get exasperated. Um, people that realize that, okay, we're, we're now in a Zoom world, we're in a virtual world, um, we, we need to, A, we need to be more careful about our time, um, and, and B, uh, we, I can, uh, because of Zoom, doesn't mean that we can't have better conversations. doesn't mean we can't take time to say, okay, before we jump to a solution, um, what are the different ways we should be thinking about this? How many perspectives are there in the room? Again, so this is taking the four conversations and being very conscious about applying them. So it can go either direction, and I've seen both. Um, then somewhere in the middle, people just you know, if people are you know have their patterns and their culture in a company. Um, Zoom might affect it; it might just stay neutral; it might not change, but it it's it's the kind of thing where because with, without that face-to-face stuff, um, you can easily slide into the more dysfunctional side of things. Oh, listen, I was, now, this is a, this is a big gripe with me. If you're going to eat, mm. close your mouth. And I mean that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> so I yeah. jumped on a, a webinar the other day and there was this very heavy man eating what looked like a, salad bowl of cereal okay. chomping, chewing with his mouth. I, I had to leave. 
Yeah, and I kept waiting yeah, yeah. for the the person in charge of it to say, "Hey, buddy, um, you know, take yeah. yourself off of, you know, shut your camera down if you're going to do that." But I, I almost threw up. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. And the so guy didn't. He didn't care. He was just so yeah. zoomatic manners. Those matter too. Standards, you know, what are our standards? So, I mean, that guy, that guy is just, um, that guy is just unaware. (laughs) Um, But again, one of the four questions is, what standards do I have? If we're going to have Zoom meetings and it's a different, it's so different than being in person. Let's set some rules. Let's set some guidelines. And the teams that do well, and and the teams that I've worked with say, okay, we're in a new world here. Let's take half an hour and set. Okay, here's some guidelines. No eating. No chewing with you your mouth your open. Right. Yeah, you have to have your camera on. You can't, you know, half the people are, uh, cameras off. They're out taking a walk and have to be more cameras on. That doesn't work. Or we do on camera, off camera. So set some guidelines so that we can have a more productive meeting. Um, now, I, 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 I'm conscious of time. So I want to say that the, the last conversation is, is the promises, the commitment conversation. It's a hugely important because that's how business um, runs, basically. If I make a promise to you, um, then you – I make a promise to you to pay you a certain amount of dollars to do X work, then you take those dollars and you can pay your mortgage. And then the mortgage – so there's this chain of promises that, that is what makes a business run. And the commitment conversation is – is complicated in the sense that we have these patterns around how we make our promises. And basically how it works is people either request something of you or they offer something to you. And then we have a choice. We can say yes or no, or the the more, more uh, valuable answer is a counter offer because generally we make promises too quick. Someone says, we do this and our answer is sure. No problem. There's so much room for misunderstanding that we end up making a promise that we can't keep. And so that conversation is a, a little more complicated in that it has this sort of, A, it has this cultural pattern to it where we're have an aversion to no, um, an aversion to saying, well, I can't do it this way, but I do it that way because we, we like to say yes and satisfy. So this conversation is really an interesting one because fundamentally if we <laughs> – if we had bad commitment conversations, guess what the consequence is? The consequence is trust. You know, I, and I, your own I trust. I said I would do this. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. then you, you're beating yourself up. Look, I've done this. I, but I also yeah. am very good with saying no. In fact, to me, the word no is a complete conversation. I'll say it twice. There is no third time. You know, if I've told you no <laughs> twice, don't don't come back and ask me again. Ain't happening, hun, yeah, which is a whole category in the South. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We have this understand. whole category in the Deep South called yeah, it ain't well, happening, hun. So, no. Yeah, well, I, but, yeah. That's, that's very admirable because it's, it, it, it's more common than not, especially in business, that no isn't part of the conversation. It should be. It and needs to be. Again, my, my teacher, uh, Raphael, he used to say, a request without a possible no isn't a request. Oh, say that again. A request without a possible no isn't a request. It's That's a demand. brilliant. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. 
So it has to be part of the conversation. Um, the, the, and the, the, the response when we get a request our way that's most valuable is a counteroffer because there's like seven components to, to satisfying a, a promise. Timing, what does good look like? Who's it for? Um, what, what format, what standard am I doing? Is it a white paper? Is it an outline? All of those things, when we do an automatic yes, any one of those six or seven things can break down the promise. And so a counteroffer is to say, okay, I can, I make, can make the timing. Yes, I can get it done on time. Um, I'm not sure we should go to a white paper before I do an outline for you. How about if I do an outline first? And then the other person goes, oh, that makes total sense. And now we have a much more solid ground that we're operating from. Um, so that's the, the, the nature of a counteroffer gives us a chance to make sure we're making the best promise possible so that we can build trust with that person. Exactly. I'm a web developer. Yeah. Scope creep is a problem for us. And I'm constantly yeah. <laughs> trying. It is. <laughs> Yeah, building my own website, I was smacking myself going, you didn't ask yourself for this. Where did this come from? <laughs> it's just, what the heck? But yes. you have to be pretty clear with yourself and with your client. Otherwise, everybody's mad. And that's never a good thing. Right. And that's that's sort of like how scrums got developed because there were this scope creep uh, without checks and balances. And then scrums were like, okay, we are going to make a smaller promise. We're going to say, Let's get this work, this this bit of software done in the next week, and then we're all going to come back and make sure we're on the same page. And it was because of that idea we have to be much more specific about what we're all working on in shorter time frames so that we don't get the scope creep or we don't go down this road. The other thing, people go down this road, and I've had people do – someone say, hey, do a report on the, last num- the numbers for the last quarter – you know, and I need it on Monday. And, okay, sure, no worries. And then my team and I spend the weekend, you know, some 100 man hours doing this report. I give it to the boss on Monday morning. He looks through these 20 pages, rips off the last page, which has a summary, and says, this is perfect for what I need. Oh. And <laughs> Sorry. I just wasted 100 man hours. Yeah. <laughs> but this is really common. Yeah, and so uh, that that's the how powerful this 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 conversation is this this commitment conversation. Now, the other here's what's really interesting, and I want to make sure I get this in. We talked about the four conversations at a, a pretty high level, but guess what? In business and in life in general, we we love two of these conversations. We have a love affair with our stories. And we love action. We love making decisions. We love getting to work. And that's the, the promise commitment conversation. Now, what happens is because of that, we go into a meeting. Someone, let's say the leader, says, says here's, here's the problem. Here's what we should do. And the next thing out of someone's mouth is, well, what are we, what, what's next? What, what are we going to do? And I call that the conversational bypass because – because of this tendency of telling our stories and then getting to action, we totally skip the collaborative or the conversation. We totally skip the creative conversation because of our rush to action. And 
that is huge because those two middle conversations are really juiciest. That's where ideas get percolated, ideas percolate, and we learn from each other and we get smart as a team. And so the conversational bypass is a really, really a critical uh, distinction for leaders and teams to understand so they can catch yourselves when they do it. The rush to action is, is, uh, is a really missed opportunity. Does that make sense? It does. And the reason it makes sense is because I've noticed, you know, during having my own team and, and working with other teams as well, that if you don't know what each other's thinking or doing or has to offer or where their skill sets are, you don't know how to help one another. You don't know who to go to and say, listen, I've got this problem with HTML. It's really kicking my my fanny. Can you take a look and help me? If you know who to go to and who's really good at different things, if you know mm-hmm. the whole team, you're just in such better shape. And that's the part that takes mm-hmm. a bit of time. You can't just rush to action. You've got to have those coffee chats, you know, those get to know each other a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a process called check-ins that comes out right. of the American Indian tradition where you, before you even start a meeting, you go, how is everybody today? What's going on? You know, <laughs> as a way to sort of uh, slow things down and realize that we're all human beings sitting around the table trying to solve a problem. Um, exactly right. So, but, yeah, yeah. So, so the the, so the 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 idea of just even understanding the distinction of the conversations and giving some purpose to it uh, can really dramatically change a meeting, and it can dramatically change a decision making process. And these are things that can be taught. I mean, you're teaching us. So these right. are things that you don't have to just go, well, we don't do that. So moving on, who's got the next thing on the agenda? These are things that can and should be taught. Oh, absolutely. And that's why we, at the beginning, we said, I said that that, that, that we're like fish and water. Um, all we need is a couple of new ideas about how conversations work. And and we, we have been an opportunity to do it differently. We have a choice to say, oh, we we could do that. Uh, when I used uh, years ago, when I was teaching at some of the auto auto companies, um, we had this these leadership programs. Um, we would teach this, and then sometimes an executive say, "Oh, we don't have time for that." We, good lord, we we're so busy, we you know. And my response always was, "You don't have time not to do that, mm-hmm. because how many decisions have you made that were a mistake or that you regret or you had to backpedal on?" Uh, because you didn't take an extra half an hour to explore your options and explore perspectives. Um, so you, we do have time. You just have to know how and when to do it. Exactly. And these days when people are so – look, social media is painful, and I live there. I do social media for my clients. Yeah, I'm, the Internet, I'm convinced, was made for me, and I just let you all borrow it. It's pretty disgusting out there these days. It can be. So you have to kind of learn to walk away from what is not working, what is not resonating to you, and find those conversations where people do resonate and you can resonate with them. So it's, I think yeah. it's time to be careful, the conversations that we have, and not just jump into something yeah. because it sounded good at the moment. Yeah. Well, and also in our political climate, you know, we, oh, God, we yeah. really need to step we need to step back and have different conversations. Yeah. Yep. That's a whole other conversation too. Yeah. <laughs> <So just laughs> That's another hour. 
about ten or two or three. <laughs> so, so Chuck, before I let you go, where can people find you? And do you have any last nuggets of wisdom that you need to share before I, you know, cut you loose? Oh, I think I've talked plenty. Um, I would just say, start begin to pay attention to the stories, stories you tell, the stories you hold uh, about yourself, about other people, um, because that's how we get stuck, and it's it's also our way out. And we can sort of open our hand instead of having that closed hand. And then just think about these distinctions. Um, my website is chuckwisner.com, so that's pretty simple. Um, and uh, uh, um, my book is, uh, um, my agent and I are shopping it around, so that's not, will be out sometime soon. But on the website, if anyone wants to sign up to make sure they're on the mailing list, that would be great. And um, I'm on Twitter and I'm on uh, all those things. Just you generally usually chuck on the school business. So pretty easy right. stuff. Good enough. You know, I had a quick question I wanted to ask you earlier. Do you have a minute to stay with me a little bit longer? Sure, one minute. Yep. Okay, one minute. Okay. We can take a minute. I, uh, yep. One minute. One something you've said a couple of times, and I, you know, I kept wanting to interrupt, but I try not to. I'm not real sick. I'm not great at it, but I try not to. But neural pathways, I mean, we have these stories mm-hmm. that we tell ourselves. And, you know, yeah. like with you and not being, a ma- you know, not being man enough and big enough and me, you know, just I don't cry. I can actually yeah. almost feel this neural pathway in my brain and I will catch myself going, shut that door. Shut that door. Don't yeah. go down that path. Does that even make sense? Yeah, there's two things, uh, and this is neuroscience is teaching us a lot about how the brain works. I think historically the idea is just close that door um, or stop doing that. Um, the other one, the other more, the newer way to think about this is just that's a part of you, that's a personality trait, that's a, a, a story you hold. Befriend that story. Say, wow, so that's interesting. You, you, I have a story that you can't cry. I, I, let, let me be open to that. Let me explore that. Maybe sometimes it serves me well, but maybe sometimes it wouldn't serve me well. True, very true. So, I, I had to so ask. Sort of like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think the, the better way for, our, for demons or when we're trying to change a pattern is not to have a battle with it, but to really become curious about it. So I can't slam the door anymore. Darn it! It feels it's like slamming the phone down. It just feels so good. <laughs> just just, just uh, close it and leave it open an inch. <laughs> so uh, the I'll, light can I'll get try. through. I'll try. That. Chuck, thank you so much. It's been wonderful yeah, speaking you. with you, and I thank you for all the thank wonderful you. tips and advice. Okay, go, you go. You've got a call. I'll finish this up, and thank you okay. so much. Okay. And I thank, thank you for you. all the wonderful Bye. tips and advice. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes, Audible, and anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Chuck you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.